And now, it's time for the Dead by Rap Pod with your host, Damone Carter, David Ma, and Nate LeBlanc. Dad Bod Rap Pod, episode 155. We are a hip-hop rap podcast. We we talk a lot of shit. We tell a lot of jokes. Uh, we give you some what I think is really good analysis and great interviews. Um, but of late, we've had to kind of adopt a different tone um, at this moment in time in our country and just in the world of hip hop, there's been a, um, a quite a few uh, deaths that we're grappling with. As we log on today, uh, we are still kind of grappling with the news of uh, Double K from people in the, under the stairs, untimely passing. We want to take a little bit of time at the top to talk about those folks, the, their work, their lives, um, and you know, I, I think it's important that we we recognize and appreciate folks who have, have given these cultural contributions and are gone way too soon. My name is Damone Carter, AKA Dim One. I am joined here in Zoom by Nate LeBlanc. Nate, how you holding up, man? I'm okay. Um, I was just thinking it's, uh, it's the first when we're recording, meaning it was the 31st yesterday, that it's just a month since we heard Doom died. Yeah. And like, yeah. because we had the opportunity to kind of memorialize doom on the show and like discuss our feelings i was like i was like i've kind of dealt with that you know what i mean mm -hmm. like it's not like a fresh wound still it's like okay that happened it's still really sad we celebrate the music the life etc and then you know I, like yesterday i believe the news about double k came out i don't know where to put all this all these feelings dude it's just it just it just sucks like I'm upset. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, I don't, I don't really know what else to say. I'm sure we'll say more stuff, but that, the, the, up top, I'm, I'm not feeling great. Yeah. Uh, Dave, um, we've, we definitely have come together during better times. How are you doing today? Yo, um, you know what? It's always good to see you guys. Um, that's a bright spot. Yeah, man. Um, just to echo Nate's sentiments. I mean, it fucking sucks and I'm getting pretty tired of walking around with a lump in my throat, you know? So um, here we are. Uh, let, let, let's let's give these people their flowers. Yeah. Their lesson, you know, um, Absolutely. it's another another lesson learned that we should have before, you know. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's unfortunate that um, a lot of times we do wait until someone's untimely passing to be like, oh, man, this is what was great about them. And this is what they did. Um, but it has been, I think, somewhat heartening to see all of the support from different corners um, uh, to celebrate the life and work of Double K from people under the stairs, um, especially in, in the Twitter space. Um, Nate, can, can you talk a little bit about, um, for maybe those who aren't as familiar, who are people under the stairs um, and, and why, do they, why do they matter as a group? Maybe let's start there. Sure. Um, People Under the Stairs are a duo um, consisting of Fess One, who's the producer and MC, and Double K, who was the MC. And um, they are a kind of foundational underground hip hop group. Like they just really occupied 
a kind of, I mean this in the nicest way, kind of like a flip-flop rap, like a, mm-hmm. a college style of rap, but it, but sure. like technicians, especially Thess is just like, he's like a mad scientist producer who's done some really amazing work. My thing with Double K was always, um, it's like your boy who rapped like the mm-hmm. high school, but he continued on and continued getting better and like rapped at a professional level. And he seemed like the nicest, chillest guy ever. And a lot of the outpouring of support um, we're seeing today seems to back that up. Um, but just to add further context for the group, a lot of folks at the beginning of their career thought they were from San Francisco because they were signed to San Francisco's own records. And they would often be up here doing um, shows. They had, a, they had a big following here in the Bay. Um, I think their style of kind of playful, fun, but technical um rap was really appreciated around here but they're what they really are is like such an la group they they yes. were um just really really important la underground group they were touring monsters they had a great business model both of the guys supported themselves off of music um before they decided to retire they actually retired uh two years ago almost to the yes. day they put out a final album they they were a, a really solid group who you could count on for great beats and relatable rhymes and just like some down to earth, real dude rap, but at a very high level. And um, double K was a huge part of that. Absolutely. Dave, in your kind of journalistic work, did you, did you ever cover people under the stairs at all? Um, I did. Lots of um, conflicting emotions all over, but um, people and people under the stairs, I hope people are going to go back and check out, um, their earlier work, um, even around at that time when it came out, I felt like I kind of dismissed it a little bit. Like, yo, um, you know, it's 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 your it's your friend next door making music, and um, as time has has proven, um, I think they in some ways lapped their influences. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, they, mm. especially production wise, and to see it like their growth as well. Um, and, you know, it just speaks, I mean, I mentioned this earlier, I think it, we, we just got to give people their flowers. I mean, we were talking about um, rap triple threats just like a few weeks ago. Mm, and, right. uh, you know, I, I don't think any of us mentioned Double K, you know what I mean? So I don't know. I, I'm just kind of here with you guys, heavy hearted um, people under the stairs were those dudes that made barbecue music, but they would also show up to your barbecue. You know, so yeah, I mean, it, yeah, yeah. It, 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 there, there's a lot of love there. And, and you know, we would be remiss not to mention San Francisco Knights, which is also sort of to Nate's point as to why they're um, included in, in like San Francisco lore. But actually, they're L.A. as fuck. And um, we would also be remiss not to mention Acid Raindrops, which is like probably the best barbecue song ever. So. Both yeah. Of- Songs are like two of my favorite beats ever and just like totally seminal underground hip-hop songs like that was inescapable when i was right right like if there was a formula those songs fit exactly in the formula in the best way you know yeah Uh, what about you damon what about you damon sort of how are you processing everything i i uh i feel like anytime i get news like this i immediately you know probably selfishly think ah, that guy's my age. Right. You know what I mean? Like, this isn't like uh, when, you know, a legendary jazz musician passes in his, in his 80s. You know what I mean? These are, these are folks who are talking about Doom or Double K that are, you know, relatively in my age cohort. And it kind of sent me on this um, thought train about how many rappers we've lost or how many kind of hip hop 
people we've lost uh, recently and how that kind of dovetails with um, just negative life outcomes for black people. Like uh, rap music is disproportionately black. Black people in America suffer uh, a disproportionate amount of negative health effects in, in kind of every statistical category. And so, you know, rap is no different. We see people die from gun violence. We see people die from somewhat preventable illnesses. I, I haven't, I haven't heard the whole thing about double K yet. So I, I'm not, I'm not casting aspersions there, but right. uh, I feel as though it just made me really reflect on uh, how vulnerable even people who have music careers and are doing their things are still prone and falling victim to um, the things that, you know, claim a lot of black life in this country and just are, you know, hurting people in general, the pandemic throwing another a layer of that right now. So just processing a lot of death. I did a review of people under the stairs last record um, for content magazine. Mm. And it was cool because it gave me a chance to kind of check back in on them. Yeah. You know, I was, I was aware of San Francisco nights and acid raindrops and, People Under the Stairs for me was one of those groups that I was always like, ah, if I was a little bit younger, I would have been totally into this. Right. You know right, what I mean? Right, like it, right. it just, it came along a little bit after I was checking for things of that nature, but I was always impressed with the the quality. It really felt to me like, you know, um, I always kind of slotted them closely with like dilated people's style mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. you know, mainstream overground uh, hip hop. And so, um, I reviewed their last record for content magazine and, uh, you know, did a deep dive on it. And it's, it, it's, that's one's production definitely stand out. But what I love about double K is like, there's just a buoyance and like a, a fun energy to it. Um, that treaded almost being kind of old schoolish, but not, not in a comical or, or jokey or like too revivalist way. So um, I really appreciated that release. And, and as both of you have mentioned, um, I do think People Under the Stairs is a great representation of, of everything that's good about L.A. hip hop. You know, and L.A. hip hop has several threads. But um, when we think about People Under the Stairs, I think they represent the, the best parts of that tradition. And, um, you know, just just a huge loss. And I know, you know, folks are kind of uh, are reeling from that uh, within our, our slice of the of the hip hop world. So, um, you know, I, at this point, I, I just I don't know what to right what right. to say. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of bad news. But I feel confident that we will continue to be a space where um, we are here to uplift the people that make this culture so great. And I think we do a good job of that when folks are alive. Um, but definitely when, when there's untimely passings like this, um, I'm glad that we have this space and, and that we can share it with y'all, the listeners. Um, so we're, we're going to continue to kind of move through this. We, we've got an incredible interview lined up for you guys. Um, with all that said, we have a, an incredible interview. Um, one of the most dynamic rappers alive, uh, was able to join us or join Nate and Dave uh, for a really, really engaging conversation. Um, somebody who I think um, is probably earns the title underrated. I think the title, the word underrated is overrated. 
But uh, when you talk about somebody's career that started in the depths of the underground and has also worked with Snoop Dogg, it's like you're talking about somebody who is is approaching legendary status. So um, stay tuned. We have an amazing interview coming up with you, coming up for you with Merce. Um, and we'll keep doing our thing here. Dad bod, rap pod. Dad bod rap pod want to talk to y'all a little bit about a new promotion that we have going with a new app. And if you are anything like me, and I think you are because you listen to this program, you are over downloading new apps. Um, once Dave got only fans, he just, he said no more. He can't <laughs> do anymore. Uh, and I'm the same way. I'm a little bit fussy when it comes to another icon on my phone screen and trying to learn how to navigate something new. With that said, as I mentioned on this program, I'm open to any kind of media platform that allows us to connect with folks. And we're doing a promotion right now with a new app called Stereo, which is very interesting in that um, it is an audio platform where you can listen to you know, smart folks like us um, have conversations. And what's really interesting about stereo as I've been playing with it is you can record voice messages and send them uh, to people having conversations, hosting conversations in real time. So uh, the best way I could describe it is if you remember, you know, old school radio shows where people would like call in, and, and have feedback for the host and kind of be part of that kind of live discussion. To me, I believe, from what I understand, that's what stereo is. And we, the Dad Bod Rap Pod, are going to have a special kind of pregame, pre-party, um, you know, maybe we should call it parking lot pimping. Remember when you used to go and get drunk in the parking lot before you went in the club because you didn't, you couldn't afford the drinks? Um, so we're, we're going to do something like that on stereo. I don't know that we're going to drink. We might, um, we might but drink, we're going to do, I probably will not refer to myself as a pimp in any way, shape or form. Well, <laughs> it's a long, exactly. It's a long promotion. So we'll, we'll see by the end of it, you, you may, but we are going to be doing a, a stereo, uh, show every Monday for the next 10 weeks at seven 30 Pacific Standard Time, and you can tune into this. It's live. It's all the way live. Uh, you can tune in, listen to us, do some banter. Uh, rumor has it, uh, uh, Open Mic Eagle will pop in from time to time. And so we'll just be talking about similar things to what we talk about on the show because it's live and I don't think it's recorded. If it self-destructs, then Nate will give his lowdown on which rappers he likes <laughs> and doesn't that have been on the program. 
Uh, yeah, so we're, we're doing this, this promotion with Stereo. Basically, the way it works, download the Stereo app. Go to your, your Apple Store, your Play Store. Download the app. Uh, search up Dad Bod Rap Pod. 7.30s on Monday. We'll be having um, a cool little like supplemental conversation. Um, what a lot of y'all don't realize is uh, when we get together and Nate presses record, um, all the dope stuff happens and then uh, we have to cut it because uh, we got an interview coming up or something. So uh, join with us in, in the conversation, uh, the banter. You'll have a chance to chime in uh, through the stereo app. Um, you can see Dave's avatar. You have to make an avatar when you show up. So whatever the lightest mustache setting is, you will see it on Dave's avatar. Um, they have nothing that does my eyebrows justice, but it's fine. I know it's in beta. They're working on it. Um, so check us out. Stereo app, download, connect with us. Mondays at 7.30 PST, Dad Bod Rap Pod. Dad Bod Rap Pod, bringing you the dopest interviews, legends, new characters, and this week is no different. Got a member of the Almighty Living Legends Collective, as well as one third of Three Melancholy Gypsies. Without further ado, Merce, ladies and gentlemen. How you doing, man? All right, how are you? Do I call you DMA or Dave? <laughs> Dave is totally fine, appreciate it. All right, cool, um, are we videoing this? Just no, it's audio. I, okay, cool. Yeah, right, cool. just audio. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Um, okay, so, you know, um, we, we like to sort of dive into artists' history. So um, for this one, I just kind of want to start at the bare bones, um, bring it back to Three Melancholy Gypsies, mm -hmm. and sort of, could you share with us your experience of meeting Eli and Scarab and how the music and the friendship sort of progressed? Yeah, um, it all started with me getting kicked out of Algebra 2, uh, Miss Rosenfeld's class at uh, Hamilton High School, and uh, she told me to find the center of the wall. And uh, a very cute little girl, uh, Filipino girl with a amazing yellow uh, raincoat, it was like out of a movie or anime cartoon, walked through the halls, so well dressed with a striped shirt. And I kind of really wasn't into girls, but you know, I'm a hetero male, so she was cute, but it wasn't like there's just something about her, like her aura. I was like, yo, she's like, you're standing out here. I'm like, yeah. And I think I had her source. I used to carry a source magazine in my back pocket all the time. She was like, you read the source. And I was like, yeah, I was like, you know about the source. And then somehow we ended up talking about freestyle fellowship. Mm. And I had the promo for the inner city griots album because I was a 14 year old kid who was obsessed with rap music and the music industry. I wanted to be an A&R since I was 13. So I read the source religiously uh, I had 70 something absences. All I did was rap and smoke weed and sell weed and go to school for those purposes for rapping. And, you know, I wasn't, I was just in, I was obsessed. So then she was obsessed with music and we just became best friends. And her boyfriend at the time was in a group with Eli and Scarab called Miscellaneous Minds. Mm. And 
his name is Idiot Savant. He's also known as Savant Young now, who is a MMA fighter and trainer. Um, so Savant was with Faith, and Savant was in the same grade. I'm still the youngest of Melancholy Gypsies, but I was I skipped some grades. Mm. Uh, and she went to junior high with Eli and Scarab, and I had heard Eli on um, this is ninety two, ninety three. And back then, hip hop wasn't, you know, since Fresh Fest and those things got shot up, there was no legal place. Hip hop were like hip hop shows were like raves, so you had to call a hotline, two four three twenty twenty hip hop one network, run by Gary G Money Stevens, and he had a long answering machine. And you could call and find out where the club was because they couldn't put the address on the flyer, um, and you find out what's going on. But he also had rap battles, and Eli was thirteen years old. And he was, you'd leave your rap on the voicemail. You leave your 16 bar, 24 bar verse acapella on the voicemail. And he was destroying grown men. So I heard about this Eli kid. And I was like, and she's like, Eli, somehow Eli came up. And she's like, Eli, that's, he's in a group with my, 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 my boyfriend. And then she gave me their music, which when Eli won that contest, he won a, a studio session with this guy and producer that gave them a beat. And Miss Lay's Minds recorded their first song and she shared that with me. It's called Submental. And I fucking loved it. And so me and E and Faith um, Santia, who's also a spoken word artist and a, a political activist, and she has a great a couple um releases out on Spotify now. Um so me and Faith were the oldest or the not highest grade. Eli and Scarab were leaving 22nd or 32nd elementary school, which is I don't know, junior high school, which is next to USC. They left 32nd Street. They were coming to Hamilton because now we had hip hop at Hamilton. Thanks to me and Faith, we had a scene. And then Eli and Scarab and I would go to The Good Life. Um, I just wanted to DJ for them, be their manager. I didn't really, you know, I could freestyle, but I couldn't write a rap to save my life. And then things happened. Miscellaneous Minds broke up. I went from being DJ to the third member. And we recorded our first song, Sunsprayed which Eli was holding on to this Nirvana record and this um, break beat from, I forget, I think we used to use Scarface breaks beats from Paris. You can put out these break beat compilations mm -hmm. and it was looped up and, and recorded by none other than future president of Atlantic records, Mike Karen. Mm. And we recorded our first song at Mike Karen's house. And he was just a little, as the skaters say, Grom like us, like, you know, like I'd sleepovers at Mike Karen's house. We would wait, like, and Rob One would take us to the Pasadena record swap meet and not digging because we were just, I was I was a DJ first. Mm. And uh, and from there, it just kind of, you know, we freestyled every day. I ditched more school, smoked more weed with them. And um, we became three melancholy gypsies because we, you know, we were definitely melancholy and we roamed all over the city trying to avoid having to go to the institution. <laughs> Uh, amazing story, uh, full of colorful characters. I uh, really appreciate that. Um, I did a kind of weird thing today because I'm off work and had the time. So I listened to one song from each of your albums in a row, like from, from the beginning to the end. So my whole day today has been like watching this or listening to this version of like the movie Boyhood where you like grew up <laughs> in front of my ears. And I have a few kind of uh, observations I would like to share with you and see if you share these observations. Is that All cool? right, Nate. Yeah, All right. Nate. Um, the beats get much better and uh, more, more uh, kind of just produced, right? The, the, the early four track stuff, which I love and grew up on is just like, 
it, it's grimy as fuck now. It's just like it's so yeah. it's so so different to how hip hop sounds now. Um, your verses got structurally quite a bit tighter uh, before you were you were just going along with things and really really like stretching into the into the edges <laughs> of the verse. Um, yeah. And then there are so many stories about kind of. LA gang culture and girls and kind of how the two enmesh at times. Um, and all, these stories are filled with a lot of novelistic detail, which is something I really enjoy about rap music and well-written rap music. And it's so interesting to watch you become more relaxed and more successful and to kind of take on this kind of wise persona where you like, you take less time to say much more. Does that sound about right to you or am I like way off? No, you get, I think you got it. You got it. I was really excited and happy to, be heard at first and then uh i slowed down and, yeah uh, i think life was slow I'm like, i think that's life you know what i mean we all get old you don't move as fast as you used to absolutely uh, can can you tell us a little bit about the four track era like it's something that we kind of hold special because we were young men then as well and we were excited about hip-hop as well and you guys were approachable selling tapes on telegraph but i don't think people now understand what that was like can you give us your perspective as someone who was kind of part of that scene and like what it felt like to be an underground rapper in the the mid to late 90s mm, uh man it was a uh, i think i had a metaphor for it or something but i i i don't know what it's comparable to now uh it still starts with the same thing kids now have the technology to record in your bedroom but technically, you had to be a lot more tight um, because there was only four tracks. So there's no punch-ins. Um, there's no recording when you're in the crew. Um, you know, my four-track record started with, I guess, another person, Jesse Shatkin, who's a part of our story, who went on to produce Chandelier for Sia, um, certain Platinum Kelly Clarkson songs and shit like that. But our first four-track was at his house because his parents were able to afford to purchase him one. So we would record there, but you had to get your verse in one take, bro. It was no, and that's why I wear a lot of, I'm already an anxious person. So my anxiety doubled because now I'm having to rap in front of people. People are going to hear this when I'm finished and everyone's waiting for their turn if I don't get it fucking right. And, uh, and I was just a DJ yesterday, you know, I wasn't a fucking <laughs> rapper. So I'm like, oh my God. Uh, but it's, I guess the same feeling kids have recorded in their bedroom now. It's just, there's a little more pressure and you had to get technically more advanced and no one's pressuring me. Like I had that pressure I put on myself. Then when I moved up to the Bay and I started recording with Sunspot, Sunspot legitimately for the first four months of me living with them would threaten to punch me, Charlie, give me a Charlie horse. And he was huge. Like Mystic Journeyman sounds like some waif, like Rasta, skinny, vegan. They were huge. They ate weights for dinner. All they did was <laughs> top ramen and cheese food spread and bench press. They were huge when I met them. I thought they were going to be the skinniest weed smoking, instant selling. It was nothing like that. So this huge man would threaten to punch me. I was 17 years old if I didn't get my verse right, if I didn't hurry up and write it, and if I didn't record it right on the first take. These were the, this is the pressure that, but other than that, it was the same as anyone recording in their bedroom, except for ours sounded like shit. And I have a new album out and I recorded the best sounding song right here on this microphone. I'm talking to you at my desk. <laughs> better than any studio I went to because I know my voice and I know how to do shit. And I guess that's another thing too, is I, I learned like these kids are learning, you learn your plugins, you learn, but we didn't have YouTube videos. So we would have to learn through actually reading the instruction manual or Pep Love from Hyro will come over and be like, Oh, if you do this, 
And then we go over there and like, oh, if you do this. And then we were kind of sharing tips, like someone comes over and fixes cars with you. You're like, oh shit, well you can just do. So that was, I think that was different. But then after that's where it gets different. Kids today, they go straight from recording in their room and usually by their self because you're not having to go to a friend's house who can afford a four track anymore. You can all afford to record on your phone. Uh, you can't just put it on the internet and say it's done. <laughs> we then had to go to Kinko's or find someone to draw something. Or for me, cut collages out of a magazine and make it or have one of my homies draw something, cut the original drawing out. My first tape, I said, I want me stepping out of a black hole riding a dinosaur. That's what I told my best friend. He drew me riding a dinosaur, then cut out the black hole. I found the nebula to put it on top of. I glued it together and that was my prized possession in my backpack, went to Kinko's. No, sorry, got on my mom's commuter, typed commercial and the track listing, then got a picture from the back of a, Ver a Robotech book of a Veritech fighter, glued, photocopied that, glued it, and made this master square for a cassette. Then I went to Kinko's, paid to photocopy that three times, then put four of them on one page, and then paid $2 each for each consecutive one, then cut it out, then went to Pasadena to buy 100 blank tapes, then set up all night on a Techniques double cassette thing. And every 15 minutes, I would flip the tape and make a new one. And that was, then I had to sell on the stand on the street every day and convince complete strangers that this tape was worth $5. Um, Pretty different than today's standard, <laughs> but that, uh, that, yeah. I appreciate you taking us through it all. I have to know, and it is Dave's turn to ask his question, but I'm interrupting here, but do you have the Nebula black hole drawing? Or did it get lost in the shuffle? Yeah, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> it's fucking out of here. Sorry. Sorry. That's funny. Um, you know, um, Merce, you mentioned Sunspot and you mentioned Pep Love. And I think, you know, it, it reminds me of the broadcast summer jams. If, I think for cats who aren't from the Bay Area, they don't understand how big that was. And sort of, it, it really felt like a movement at the time. Um, sort of piggybacking on that um out of that sort of era came the felt album with you and slug and i i, I think it's a really uh, interesting relationship that you guys have had and i just wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about that sort of how that project came together and how did you guys meet and what's the working process like with slug oh uh, we met i met sean at the in 1998 at on the opening for high Row. living legends was opening for high Row. Um, hieroglyphics paid us absolutely no money. Um, but they said, if you can make it to the shows, you can perform, which was more than we deserved. And I'm eternally grateful. Uh, yeah, we were in an RV. I can still remember getting where the RV was parked in front of First Ave and walking in. And my homie Anacron had lived in Chicago, which was near Minneapolis. And he had told me about Rhyme Sayers or Atmosphere. And I walked in the first half, standing back in the back after he performed, standing in the back trying to sell my tapes. And Sean was there. He said, yo, I want to give you this. And I said, I want to give you this. And this is before he performed because the trick was, like, I was very, um, I want to say empathetic or compassionate. I don't know what the word is. I knew the struggle of a local rapper standing out in front when a tour came to town trying to sell their tapes. So mm -hmm. I would always make it a point to say the name of the crew on the stage. And when we said, I said, shout out to Atmosphere and Rhyme Sayers, the crowd popped. And that's like when Busta Rhymes or anyone would say Living Legends at a show at Maritime Hall, 
the crowd would pop because we were their guys. We mm. belong to the Bay. You know, we belong to the West Coast. Like you showed us love. You were going to get people knew who we were. We weren't just some openers that, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They knew us. They loved us. And we loved because we loved our city. We loved our coast. And that's how I felt about Rhymestar. So I was like, oh, shit, these guys are the real deal. And from there, I listened to Overcast. And we kind of just popped up at different shows, whether it be the Gavin or, you know, they came out to do Broadcast Summer Jam Atmosphere. Mm. And we did some other, you know, like South by Southwest. We just kept crossing paths. And I did an album called Netherworld in Chicago with himself and Anacron on Galapagos Records. And... Somewhere out of that came someone. I did a song about Christina Ricci on that album. And someone <laughs> told me, Slug has a song about Christina Ricci, or he mentions Christina Ricci. And then I called him and I was like, Bro, I love you. You love Christina Ricci? We're the only two rappers <laughs> rapping about Christina Ricci. And man, uh, from there, we just, we, 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 we kind of broke it down and became friends. And one day he called me and said, Let's do an album. And at that point, I had made it. I had a girlfriend, I had a car, I had my own apartment in Orange County, far from the hood, I was on. I said, come live with me and we'll record a record. And he drank coffee and cigarettes and he taught me how to count bars. And from there, that's like we're recording with Sean like is for me is because I didn't know until this felt for how much older he was than me because age didn't matter. I've always had older friends and I've always been the youngest. So I never thought about it like that, but he's considerable. He's eight years older than I am. Uh, and I get like, oh, this is why you've been talking down to me my whole life. <laughs> Should. <laughs> um, and even to this, even this last uh, felt, he kind of changed my perspective on writing. Hmm. He always, I always learn something. I always get better. Maybe not felt three, but it's because of where we were in our relationship and where I was in my life. But felt one, I got better. Felt two, I got better. And felt four, I even, I feel like I've gotten better. I'm glad you brought up Maritime and the kind of early, I don't know if it was early for you guys. It was early Legends days for me. Um, You guys all had kind of solo stuff out and there were starting to be coalescing group projects. And something I distinctly remember, because at a Legends show, there'd be a lot of dudes on stage, just kind of by the nature of the group. Um, It's a lot of people with mics in their hands and kind of roaming the stage. And I believe it was you, and please correct me if I'm wrong, used to do these crazy jumps you would like crouch down and then do what seemed at the time. And I was really high. Uh, these like absurdly high jumps. Can you talk about that a little bit? I just feel like people who weren't there would never understand this. Man, I, for me, performing is an outer body experience. I do not enjoy being the center of attention. But when I get on stage in the music, especially my biggest qualm with Living Legends is that everyone in the group doesn't love everyone's music as I, as much as I love everyone's music. I am the hugest fan of my friends. So when I'm on stage, I am losing my mind. Um, that's all I can say is I am just overjoyed. I am fucking geeked up to the fucking extreme. And also we had to have an amazing show because that was the only way there was no, if I didn't do an amazing show and convince you to spend $5 with me that night, there was no going to the store to get it. There were, until Napster, there was no going online to get it. There, I had to sell myself. And uh, I don't know if it came from wrestling or punk rock. And I had really, hadn't really got into punk rock. People always say, you remind me of Bad Brains with their energy. And I had never even fucking heard of Bad Brains until yeah. I was 20-something. 
and I definitely didn't like it when I heard it. I was like, what is this shit? <laughs> um, I wasn't ready for it. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, it was definitely just pure um, energy. It maybe came from, like, you know, later on, like, Fred Durst was a huge influence on my performance style. Pigeon John, who I used to grow up the Good Life scene, he was a fucking psycho on stage. Um, just not caring um, and just turning off. And, yeah, those I don't know where those jumps jumps you know came from but they definitely became a staple i've been accused of doing backflips i've been accused of a lot of things but high split oh that's where it came from hanging out with cheerleaders being friend zoned with cheerleaders and i think (laughs) there was a night um at a high school party where no girls wanted to get with me and no girls wanted this girl didn't want to get with someone else and she was a cheerleader and she taught me the back jump splits and we just practiced those in someone's backyard. I think I was stoned. And she was stoned. And um, being like an asexual kid, I, I definitely learned a cheerleader jump from being a fucking nerd. <laughs> That's so dope, man. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you know, just moving along um, your chronology a bit, I want to talk about your um, um, debut on Def Jux. Um, okay. You know, can, can you just sort of give people an idea of what the scene was like around that time? And, you know, Def Jux sort of being the submersive um, label they were on the East Coast. How did you link up with them? And just, just how did that happen? And, and you know, what, what are your recollection, recollections of that era? Man, it all starts with Company Flow. Uh, I remember being a huge fan of the first unofficial recordings, the first Company Flow shit. And I remember mm-hmm. hearing, um, not Juvenile Techniques, um, Peep Around Corners and um eight steps to perfection on like mr c tapes i was a huge like i said nerd hip-hop fan so i used to buy doo-wop mr c ron g like i had all these mixtapes before like when they were really mixed they're djs the new york screen sns yo summer 98 or summer 95 we got the new shit this is cold flow check it out eight steps to perfection like that (laughs) that was and so i know that doom 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 and then when the clear vinyl came out for Funk Crusher, the first Funk Crusher, I, me and Aesop from Legends had it and we would play it incessantly. And we were booked for a show with them, a showcase with them at the Gavin in San Diego. Mm. And all of a sudden, Doze from Rocksteady got us on to Rocksteady Jam. And this is 97, 96, when my whole get job was to introduce Mystic Journeyman. That's all I got to do. <laughs> wow. But they would bring me with them. And by bring me with them, I mean, they would let me sleep on the floor wherever they were going. And if I bought my own ticket, I could come and introduce them. Wow. Which I am eternally grateful for. I'm not talking shit. But I'm just like, for people out there that won't accept those type of roles, like I wasn't even a hype man. I would, I said, yo, are y'all ready for Mystic Journey, man? Make some motherfucking noise. And that's what I flew to New York to do. But it was in Rocksteady Park. And I was like, I got to do it. Like I've never been to Rocksteady Park. Mm. This is hip hop. And we get there. And of course the sound goes out. There's a rapper who just put out his first single name, fucking most deaf standing next to me. I'll never forget wearing his baby on his chest. Supernatural on the other side of stage. Who was the God of freestyling with his son, Haji on this side of step. And I'm the freestyle guy for Mystic Journeyman. The sound goes out. They're like, Merce, do your thing. I look at Supernat, I look at Most Def. I don't know who Most Def is at this point. I knew it was Most Def later because I bought the 12 inch. And I was like, fuck it. 
and I just whip into an acapella freestyle and I fucking diss Karis one because he just had the fucking obey your thirst. Don't <laughs> obey your thirst, obey merch, fuck Karis one, sell out Bob, but motherfuckers in the parking lot. <laughs> and uh, LP was in the crowd. And I gave him my tape that I made and I said, yo, he's like, what's up, son? I'm like, what's up, bro? I'm gonna, um, we're going to be rocking with you guys. I'm a big fan of Merce. Yo, I, I love the shit you just did up there. I'll check it out. Gave him the tape later on. I don't know where I ran into him again. He's like, yo, that I put, I put my middle finger in your mouth. I give a fuck what you're saying. That line is hot, son. I was like, yo, thanks. And I ran to it to Gavin. And the first thing he said to me was like, yo, bust me down with a square. Bust me down with a cigarette. I was like, what is bust me down? <laughs> He's like, yo, that means I cannot borrow a cigarette, son. I was like, yo, sure. He's like, yo, you want to buy you a drink? I was like, yeah. And he bought me a Seagram 7 and 7. And we have been like thick as thieves ever since, man. I think we went to a strip club. No, that was how he told. He listened to the tape a couple nights later. We were out in front of Wetlands or something. It used to be crazy, bro. Like there's like El Fudge, this person, like everybody's just massive. Like Pargene Gray, Pumpkinhead, rest in peace to PH. Like we would all be. We were at walking outside of Wetlands, and a lot of people were just strictly about hip hop. And L was like, "Y'all want to go to a strip club?" And I'm like, "Yes." <laughs> and he's like, "Oh shit, I don't have any money." And I, rap money so i was like like it's tape money so I'm like here's 300 like cool i'll get you back son and he's like yo ever since then like like cigarettes strippers liquor like we just and we we're just like he's a very giving person and that's how def jux kind of started is lp signing his friends you know and there's been financial hardships with the label and i'm not too vocal about it i never really tripped because i always told him for the most part without you i got my first call from warner brothers because of what i did on def jux um so you know there's been friends that have dissed him there have been friends that have sued him um i've had my feelings about it but all i remember like it's me and jamie have been friends and like for east coast rapper to sign a west coast rapper and the funny thing is our first i remember i signed my contract on a from a fax that we got at hyde street studios and the engineer for that session where me and Liff recorded sneak preview for my first Def Jux release mm. was Ghazi, who now owns the biggest distribution in hip hop empire. He wow. was the engineer for that record. Wow. And I signed my first record deal with Def Jux for $2,500 standing in high street studios. Um, and I was just always grateful and still to this day, very grateful to LP for, for that platform. He put my record in Best Buy. He got me an ad in the source. He let me put a comic book as my ad, like not a picture of the album. I was like, I want Jim Mafu, this underground comic book writer, who's my favorite comic book writer and artist to draw my ad. And I want it in Thrasher. And I don't, only, I don't want it in Double X. I want one in Thrasher and I want one in Merce. Cool. No one is shooting videos. LP himself hasn't shot a video. Understand this. And I say, yo, I want five grand to get my friend Van Styles, who does porn. He's never directed a video before, but. His girlfriend is D and she's been in a lot of videos and she's been in a lot of porn. He's directed her in porn, but he's never done a music video. But I want you to give me five grand so I can rent the Wu-Tang Mansion and pay porn stars to shoot this video for BET Uncut. All right, Merce. Like, you know, that's the type of shit that you never forget, man. And that's what the vibe is, Def Jux. It was never about sales. It was never, it was like Party Fun Action Committee, SA Smash, C-Ray's Wall. Like we were all legitimate friends 
Mm. And um, if we weren't friends, we became friends. You know, I, you know, I've seen Vast and C Ray's naked for whatever reason. <laughs> That's the vibe of Def Jones. <laughs> Thank you for that, man. That that could not have been said better. <laughs> Your stories are amazing, man. Um, I'm kind of a conceptual question, and I know we need to wrap up. So take take it how you will. But I guess I just want to say this: you've rapped so much. You like since you were a young man, and you continue to just put out project after project and your, your verses are always so well constructed and so well spit. And I'm wondering if this is the last time I ever get to talk to you, do you find rapping to be effortless? Yes. In a way that I've, hold on, knock on wood. I've never had, I've never had writer's block, you know, Um, it's something I use this in almost every interview, but I can't say it enough. Bob Marley was once asked like, how long he's been a Rasta. And he said, ever since. And that, that, that I felt that like, that's how long I've been a rapper. Even when I was just trying to be a DJ, I was a rapper. I was born for this. And I always tell up and coming people, and I've discouraged some people from rapping by telling us a hard life, man. And if you a choice, don't do it. I have no choice. This is who I am. This is who I've been. I've tried to quit multiple times. I want to quit, you know, and I definitely have a date from when I will be finished rapping, you know, but that has nothing to do with my love for it. It's just, I know that I'll be done, but yeah, until then I, I'm, I, you know, only reason we're ending this in the next 20 minutes is because I get on Twitch every day and I rap for two hours. I freestyle the words that people type in the chat because I want to, when I finish this shit, I want to be at my peak. I don't want to be soft. I don't want to be whack. Um, I want to be better. I want someone to listen to every song I did. And that's the only reason I put out my old shit is because I think that I, it shows growth and it shows other artists that you can suck and someone will still love it because there's people who love that shit and will tell you to your face, just like these motherfuckers who say Reasonable Doubt is Jay-Z's best album. I think that's the worst thing you can say to an artist sometimes, especially mm-hmm. someone to me that's gotten as good as Jay-Z or as good as I've gotten. Like, oh, and but it's but when people say that it's your best shit and you're whack now, you can say it's your I love that album because it came to me at a moment in my life and it's a moment in time for me. Music is definitely a lot of nostalgia. But when you say that I fell off, you're bullshitting. Talk a little bit about Love and Rockets 2 and uh you know, Love and Rockets 2 declaration. Oh yeah, uh, I gotta sell some shit. <laughs> Just for the folks to know, you know, um, what you've been up to and what to expect from the new project. Um, there's some stuff that I haven't, I haven't talked about a lot, but uh, um, this album was really deep for me. Uh, Love and Rockets 1 came out. It's called The Transformation. As I was recording that record, I cut all my hair off. Um, I had just done this cult, whatever the fuck people call it, um, landmark seminar, where you go and you become a better person. And I was kind of doing it for my partner at the time. I didn't think I needed it. And I still, in hindsight, I don't think I needed it. But, you know, it brought some good questions. Like, I've always been an outcast, whether I can't hang out with Black people because I'm not Black enough, can't hang out with white people because I'm obviously not white enough. Um, and I moved around a lot. And so I was, you know, this hairstyle that I had at the time, like, did I develop this hairstyle and this whole way of rapping? Am I actually rapping and complaining that I'm not going platinum, but am I making music that's unapproachable? Am I purposely putting myself in a place where I'll be rejected because I know they're going to reject me? Or I ask myself that, and that's why I named the album The Transformation. And none of that was true. 
And uh, this is the declaration of 10, 11 years later, you know, I've experienced mm. a lot of tragedy, whatever labels, blah, 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 success, ups and downs. And I've come to, this is who I am. And um, like you said before, if you listen to my music, like women or just love and, and gang culture. And that's what I learned from the last felt record that kind of set me in the direction on this record is slugs. Like I tell, I forget what the, you use that, but everything I do is through the lens of this. I'm a rapper, but this is, you know, my worldview. And I was like, Oh, that's easy. I just, to me, I just being with my mom and my brother and talking and everything I've been through and moving back to LA and being remarried and having new kids. Like the first culture before I knew I was black, I knew I was black, but I didn't have any white people really to, I didn't grow up with white. I, I was living around all black people. I was insulated. So being black wasn't my identity. I didn't know I was hetero yet really, but I knew what cripping was. Like I knew what gang culture was like from a very young, my first fight was my babysitter telling me to go punch this kid across. I remember vividly at four years old at the park and told me to go punch him in the face. Cause he had the wrong color. Like, everything I tell is through the eyes of gang culture and um, for better or for worse. And so that's why the DLC, the new video is like red and blue. Mm. Um, the declaration is the sloths and swamp me. Like I'm a hood kid, man. And I just, I got bused to a lot of different schools and I've seen a lot of shit and I've been able to pick up comic books and skateboards and to make money. A lot of dudes go the other way, but to go to make money. Yeah. Like, I've purposely been like, yeah, I'm going to do album with Slug because that's going to give me more white fans. And these white fans keep me on tour and keep me out of the hood. And I have been bending to that wheel or working with Ninth Wonder even like, oh, the Boom Bap crowd are like this, but I don't, I've never heard the Black Star album. Like I haven't heard a Roots album since 1995, bro. Like I'm, I love E-40 and DJ Quick. Like I'm a ghetto kid. Like, you know, like I have, you know, I've, I've, I've just, you know, like, I still have people, you know, no, not, not that COVID's not real, but like, I know more people that died from getting shot still mm-hmm. at this age, my homies, or go to jail than get COVID. Like, that's a sad thing. You know what I mean? And right. I know a couple people with COVID, like, or have, you know what I mean? But they survived that. A lot of people I grew up with didn't survive it. And I don't tell that story because I feel like that's, I haven't because I feel like that's not what my white fans want to hear. That's not what the underground fans want to hear. And now I'm at a point where I'm just like, fuck it, man. Like, this is so... What I did with Fresh is every night after a show, we would drink. And uh, the racism with um, like Black Lives Matter and everything. And the worst part about our fan base is that they think that they're not racist. Mm. And um, you take, for instance, Grouch, who I love and I think is a great rapper, maybe a better rapper than me, better producer by far, great artist. Um, but the moves that I made, and I tell this anyone, like Living Legends, like I'm not better than, like, I'm a hugest fan of Living Legends. I think they're all better than me. I think I made some better choices than some members and I worked harder than some people maybe. And I had, and I was lucky. Um, Whatever that is, my Spotify numbers are double what grouches are. My social media numbers are quadruple what grouches are. Um, We go to Salt Lake city, which is a predominantly white town. I went there four months before on my tour for my new ninth wonder album. There were 75 people. I go with grouch. There's 600 people. There's no one in that crowd who doesn't know who the fuck I am. People come up to me and go, oh, you're still doing this? I'm like, motherfucker, not only do I do this, but I sell more records than this guy. And not that I'm better than him, but it's like, how do you not know? It's because you want to hear white people rap. You, I have, you know what I mean? And you, Or when you want to hear something ignorant, you listen to other type of black people. But when it comes to intelligent music that you can relate to, you choose someone you can relate to. And they don't see the, the, the lightweight racism in that. Mm-hmm. And that's the scary part. 
I'm okay with the Trumps. I'm okay with the Proud Boys. You know, like, not okay with them like that, but I know where you stand, bro. Mm-hmm. And you've done the work and you decide, you've chosen a side. The people here or the people looking at the Proud Boys, like, those guys have a problem. I'm fine. And I'm like, no. It's so, and it's not a bad thing. It's not your fault. Like, we've all been had the wool pulled over on. So I just stopped giving a fuck, man. I stopped code switching. And that's something that my, my wife put me up on. I never know that I do. But she's like, I can tell when you're on the phone with talking to Fresh. And I can tell when you're on the phone talking to Grouch. And I was like, man. So me and Fresh give me beats and we, I would just drink some whiskey. Um, there's more bass in my voice when I'm talking to my homies. There's more, you know, I don't put on my, I rap. I, and I look back at my music now, Nate, I probably go, can go through and listen to like first song. And sometimes like there's for real good music. And then there's from Mercer's the world into the beginning. Like I'm rapping as some people would say in my white voice. And I'm talking about black things rapping in my white voice. And I think, it's kind of how I feel about Childish Gambino, no disrespect, but like I, I, I identify with that struggle. Like, it's like you, you walk in two worlds and I, and now I live in Inglewood, California. I live off of Crenshaw on 108th. I, I could go days without seeing a white person. You know what I mean? And it's just like, I've been here for, you know, this is me. This is who I am. You know, my family's owned a business in South Central for 70 years. Most likely when I finish rapping, I'm just going to take over the business. Not because I don't need the, and I need the money, but this, keeping the legacy i want to see it get to 100 and i'm part of the black community and i'm thankful for my fans that take me around the world but if you don't accept this this new new record or this new direction you know i, I could go anywhere in the world and anyone at my sh- my shows the first question they ask me is when's the new felt coming out <laughs> fuck the new felt bro <laughs> or, or are you still working with living legends and i'm like when you say living legends you're not going to ask me about sunspot you're not going to ask me about lucky you're not gonna ask me about asap you're not gonna ask me about picasso or scared you're gonna ask me about eli and grouch so just say when are you gonna rap with a white person again because i'm the black person you love to hear rap with white people whether it's i've been hype man for lp asap rock grouch eli and slug the biggest white rappers in our scene and so and i'm i'm good at it i'm good at supporting the white guy i'm the, i'm fucking you know i'm the fucking eddie murphy to nick nolte and um I'm done with it. I'm not, I'm not mad at it. Um, but I did it. I did it for the money and it was a safe choice for me because I tell slug all the time. The, those tours saved my life, bro. People were friends. I know were dying and going to jail when I was on the warp tour and there was no reason. I was like, yeah, slug, like, slug gave me $75 to go on the fucking guy loves ugly tour. I was eternally grateful still. Like, I'm just, I was like, yes, I can make $75 a night doing 50 shows or I could be home with my homies who I love, but shit's kind of crazy right now. What do I got to do to stay out here with them? Cool. People like Ninth Wonder. Let's do that. People like you guys. Like, I'm like, what do you guys like? Because I like, I'm a scientist. Like A&R. Like, I'll read this fucking source and be like, that's why I'm so good at pay dues. Because my whole life, I'm like, oh, I could listen to Dom Kennedy or Kendrick or Casey Veggies and be like, this kid may have a thousand followers now, but this is the guy. And so I just apply that to my thing. Like, oh, people will like me and Slime rapping together cool we'll do more do felt three do felt two it's like you know I, I did a lot of it for the money and and the more than the money is to get out of my circumstances which is what a lot of my contemporaries do and i've grown up criticizing them like oh you sold crack and what i did isn't that bad but it's still i did something i did what i had to do and it's not what i now the declaration is this is the music i want to make i've never made an album where i think every song is fucking great and um 
or I have, but in hindsight. So hopefully five years from now, I don't hate this record, but I love this record. Um, and we made it free because of what's going on with COVID. You can go to MerceRaps.com and get it for free because if you're unemployed, like I'm unemployed, you probably can't afford it. So it's for free if you don't, if you had to cancel your Spotify because we only got $1,800 to live for a year. <laughs> go get it for free, man. And enjoy, if you still have electricity. Merce, you're an underground Yo. hero. You are a deeply honest person. You're a great rapper. And we appreciate you coming on and telling us your stories. Thank you so nice. much. Thank you so much, life. bro. Peace. Talk soon, man. Peace. Dad Bod Rap Pod, episode 155. That was our conversation with Merce. Uh, Nate, Dave, I, I unfortunately could not be on hand in the, you know, <laughs> the one time uh, somebody mentioned something that I was actually connected to. I couldn't be there. But uh, how, how was that? Nate, I'll start with you. Like, um, we all know Merce's work. We, we all know he's, he's incredible. But kind of how, how was it to do that interview? really really cool like um what, one of our more memorable interviews of the last little while um just to set the scene a little bit it was around the holidays i can't remember exactly when it was but he he just kind of made himself available in a window where dave and i could do it i was off work um right i believe and dave had like a, a little window in his schedule you unfortunately did not but i'm not sure what at this point like what is and isn't gonna make the edit for the final episode but like he asked like how we were and like wanted to know about <laughs> us and the show and like kind of like banter about um, he w he was like, Oh, you guys are on like Stony Island. Like, how's that working out for you? And I'm yeah. like, you, you like know what, like us, like, it was just cool. And like, he, we were like, Oh, usually Damone would be here. And he's like, what's up with Damone? Why isn't, why isn't Damone yeah, here? Totally. It was, he's he like, was you just, guys don't, you guys don't have dad bods. Like, yeah. It was kind of cool. It totally. Cool. Yeah. He was just like very down to earth, very open. He, uh, he like had like time until his Twitch show started where he raps every single day for his Twitch following, which I think is crazy. crazy. Um, but so cool. And I, I just really, really enjoyed talking to him and felt like I got to know him. And I felt like, and this really doesn't happen in this forum very much, that he was interviewing us just as much as we were interviewing him, which is mm -hmm. kind of flattering in a way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And only happened one other time. Uh, Paul Barman gave me and Dave that business. <laughs> he had gotcha right. questions yeah. for us. I remember that. Totally. I, I was very unprepared for Paul Barman. That, that, that was great. Um, Merce was Merce was great, man. I mean, I'm I'm sure like kind of what Nate was saying, but he was very just soft spoken, you know, like very almost stoic. Um, he would sort of like rise up regarding different situations and lines of questioning, which I thought was really cool. Um, and of course, I mean, he you know he he went through all his history with like Living Legends, so that was really cool. The first time I spoke to Merce was like maybe like nine, 1999 or something. Like one of my very first writing assignments, it was for this. Um, website called hip hop infinity which 
Shout out to that. A lot of people remember that shit. That was a long time ago. And, you know, uh, you know, it's something to scoff at now. But back then it was like Slug was on there. Like everybody was on there. So it was like the crazy Mm -hmm. shit. Anyway, so even then when I spoke to Merce, I felt like when we spoke then, I think he was getting his hair cut. And I was like in between classes at college. When So when we connected, we were like kids then. So mm. it's interesting to speak to him now and kind of talk about fatherhood and talk about the growth of his career and his collaborations and sort of what what those choices have done to his career. So, um, yeah, man, that was really great. Uh, I've been a fan of Merce for a minute. Um, admittedly, I, I don't really check for his later stuff, but um, the inner the interview made me want to do so because I think like he he's he's a real person who grows. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's not making the same yeah. song he did in 1993 as three melancholy gypsies you know so it's um yeah man it was really good to get a moment of his time I, I was really fond of the interview that's that's dope I I think um in terms of the lanes that we cover the niche uh kind of content we cover um he might be on the pantheon of one of the biggest deals in terms of where he was able to take um his music and, and for where he came from and so I uh I, I'm very glad we got him on the show. I, I kind of mad I wasn't able to be a, a part of the interview, um, but I just I really appreciate um, he's still him. He was able to to transcend underground, uh, flirt with some mainstream, had a major label deal, but never mm-hmm. really stopped being him. You know right, what I mean? Right, and like right. he never even on the on the the Warner Brothers stuff, he he, he didn't get a sense he was putting on anything because he had a deal or whatever. Um, and so I I wanted to come on really to ask him like how he rapped for 24 hours. Like, <laughs> we didn't even touch like, on that. I mean, which I guess shows you the depth of his work. But we were just like, how was working with Ninth Wonder? How was working yeah. with uh, Slug for those felt projects? Yeah. At, at sort of the height of, of that shit. You know what I mean? Right. And so um, he's just able to be this draft pick that works with everybody. And But sure. to your point, re- retains his, his essence, which is he's just Merce. So that was really cool to talk to him, man. Yeah, we're we're uh, happy that he could come on the podcast. Um, I think this is an interview that people are going to really connect with. Um, and it's, you know, comes in a string of interviews that we've done with people who are really some of the uh, preeminent voices in the game. So uh, shout out to Merce for coming on um, and checking in with us and caring about our well-being, which I, when it, we've never had a rapper ask, where's Damone? Like that's, <laughs> that's, that's never happened. So uh, yeah, shout you know, out we, to Merce. Sorry to cut you off. We like mentioned the derelicts and he was stoked on that. Uh, there's a really co- There's a really cool part of the interview where he kind of like recites some of the lines and I'm not sure if that's Nate's going to um, keep uh, that or not. Make sure you listen to the end if you enjoy stuff like that. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Bonus, so, bonus yeah. tracks. Yeah, man. Um, so we 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 were fortunate enough to have Merce on the program. Um, you know, folks who know about Merce uh, most likely will also know about the uh, crew that he was a part of called Living Legends. Um, which Nate, um, because you are my my context alley oop setter um, for for our friends with Tim Boots, who who were. <laughs> Uh, describe to us what Living Legends was and kind of uh, Merce's connection to that. Sure. Um, Living Legends is a conglomerate of several different groups and entities 
um, anchored by Mystic Journeymen. Mystic Journeymen are kind of the, the organizing force behind all of this. Uh, main, main participants include the Grouch, uh, Merce, Scarab, Aesop, but not Aesop Rock or Aesop Rocky, <laughs> um, Picasso, um, Arada, and I'm sure I'm Eli. Eli. Um, is yeah. a huge part of it. And then they have various groups among all of that. And then they did do some crew projects as living legends. Um, and I was first um, hip to their work through like underground cassette culture. Like they're, they, yes. they were the, mm -hmm. the stalwarts of four track rap um, yes. in the kind of mid to late 90s they had like these these were like mythical prized objects among people who went to high school with me um or I guess I went to high school with them technically um but you know we th there was a big scene of hand to hand out straight out the backpack not even straight out the trunk in the mm. traditional <laughs> E40 and too short and other bay area progenitors they were like on telegraph slanging tapes yep. they were at shows slanging tapes they had projects um, both with each other and solo and living legends is um, I think a model of hip hop entrepreneurship that continues to inspire people. Um, this uh, episode will not air for another couple of weeks, but we just talked to a Canadian rapper who was inspired by their mixtape hustle. It was, they weren't even mixtapes actually. They were, they were albums. They're just they tape were just tapes. Cassette right. Albums. right. Um, right. So anyway, there, there, there's a lot of different threads there. There's a lot of different folks involved in this. They have, um, I, I guess it's like, it defines the sound of Bay Area underground rap is the easiest way I can put it. Absolutely. And um, I, my kind of personal artist fan timeline, uh, overlaps heavily with Mystic Journeyman, who Nate mentioned, who are the uh, kind of the, the, the head of that Voltron of Living Legends. Um, and I think Living Legends was like the realization of their underground hustle dream. So I, I've seen live, Living, I've seen Mystic Journeyman, excuse me, perform in a community center here in San Jose for literally seven people. And like, <laughs> I was one of them. So there was just six other people. So I saw them do this. This was maybe 94. I was probably a, a high school senior. Uh, they came to Hank Lopez Community Center uh, where some kind of, you know, low key Zulu Nation activity was happening. Did a show in the most guttural sense of it. I believe they brought a radio and played their tape instrumentals and rapped out loud. Um, and so it was kind of a sight to see at a time when, um, I'm not gonna lie, I kind of was like looking down upon that and like, oh, these tracks are so, you know, rudimentally put together, like they're no high road, you know what I mean? But right, what, I left, right. what I left from with that day is that like, they use energy um, and enthusiasm and everybody in that room bought a tape. You know what I mean? And so they kept doing that. And they used San Jose as kind of one of their launching pads. They Mystic Journeymen are from Oakland. Uh, but they came to San Jose quite a bit doing that same kind of hustle. And then I kind of remember 95, 96, we started to see Grouch. We started to see they had these other cats that they were cycling through. Mystic Journeymen also had a, um, an underground scene called Unsigned and Hello Broke. 
um, that was kind of the, the paper of record for that culture. And so they really kind of grew and blossomed this thing. Um, and I, I'd love to go back. I should have done this before the episode and kind of see like where their timeline and, and high rows kind of piggyback. Cause it's, it's kind of a similar business model in the sense of it's this huge crew. They've got merch, they tour a bunch, they've got a bunch of, um, satellite groups and projects but it was even one step grimier than that and i think to nate's point that's what made it um feel so underground the underground there's nothing more backpack than living legends at its most living legends uh <laughs> so uh dave you talked a little bit about um you know interviewing Merce in, in the in the good old days who, who else from like living legends have you interacted with and kind of what's your take on the, them as a crew? Um, I have, I mean, thinking back, I've, I probably have interviewed almost all of them. Um, I, the only person I haven't spoken to, I think is the Grouch, but um, my first introduction to the to Living Legends was um, a dusty fucking Sands of Eternia, Mr. Journeyman tape from my friend Corey. And, you know, it's sort of to your point earlier, like, yeah, like they celebrated the hiss you know what I mean? Like they celebrated that that shit was made in their kitchen while they're lifting weights, you know? And um, to Nate's point, like they literally would sell it out of their backpack and you put it in your backpack. So it was like straight up that era. And I, I think for East Coasters, they, they, they don't realize how big the broke ass summer jams were. Like yes. that was the thing to do, the, you know, the party to go to in the Bay. It was sold out every time at Maritime Hall. Um, or when, you know, or when they would have shows at the independent, it would always just be live as fuck. And, you know, what you were saying earlier, Damone, like, um, not, I wasn't the hugest fan of all their songs, but you want to buy the, the tape from that dude who just performed because they would always bring it like so hard. And, you know, I really liked how their crew splintered, splintered as well. Cause I really liked the three, uh, three melancholy gypsies. I liked the Grouch and Eli, uh, projects as well. So yeah, man, it's it's really cool to see their influence like grow to some of the people that we spoke to uh, recently who are a little who are a little bit um, younger, um, and you know whose like living legends experience was a little bit before their time. So it was really cool that we got to uh, immerse ourselves in that scene. Um, and again, I think if you if you weren't here between '98 and 2003, like I don't think you get how how big of an mm. They were everywhere. They were everywhere. But then again, sort of quickly, quickly dissipated, I felt, too. And we can well, get into those reasons. Yeah. So let's let's talk about it a little bit. Um, I posed a question of the week on our on our mm -hmm. Twitter feed um, at Dadbod Rap Pod. And the question was this, and I'll pose it to y'all. Um, is Miss, I'm sorry, is Living Legends underrated? Nate LeBlanc. It's tough to say as someone who like going to legend, living legend shows was a big part of my formative hip hop experience. Like I hold them in, in pretty high regard, but then they're essentially, as we learned from all the various people worldwide who connected with us, they're, they're kind of unknown in, in other parts of the world and especially in other parts of the United States. So in, in that way, I kind of think they're underrated because I wish more people knew about them, mm -hmm. but then mm -hmm. around here, they're they're kind of properly rated as like you know local heroes you know what i mean and mm -hmm, I, I just mm -hmm. have to say like it's not music i return to a ton and so i'm not gonna like totally go to bat that like everyone should be listening to this it's like it was really important to me when i was a kid 
and it represents something like a side of hip hop that I love and I have a lot of affinity for, but mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not like dying for people to like go memorize uh, tracks from Worldwide Underground. Like, I don't think that's going to do anyone any good right now. You know what I mean? Hmm. Totally. Hmm. Dave, what's, what's your I, take? Uh, Living Legends underrated or not? You know what? Um, not unsimilar to Nate's take. I mean, I, I, I would say that they're very properly rated. And this is no diss to them, but I don't think a lot of their stuff aged that well. Um, certainly moments of brilliance throughout. And um, like I said, I really like some of their offshoot projects. But, you know, like I don't return to Grouch's Don't Talk to Me, even though I literally probably have listened to it 5,000 times. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? So mm-hmm. I'm not, it's, uh, they made straightforward music that doesn't necessarily reveal itself years later. It's just dope as fuck. And um, there's something to be said for that. Um, I think their entrepreneurism um, is something that, that sticks with me. Like, you know, the, the impression that they made with their zines and their and the label and being independent as fuck and, and all the broke ass summer jams, like like that made an impression on me as a whole, not yeah. so much a specific album of theirs, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel uh, you know, kind of similar to y'all, but I'll I'll kind of weave in this personal thread of having proximity to Mystic Journeyman and early living legends cats when they were kind of on the come up. I think made me realize that I wasn't about that life. Mm-hmm. Mystic Journeyman was very vocal about like we slept on people's couches in in Germany yeah. Yeah. to to yeah. get where to get where we're going, and I'm like, I celebrated this. it. Yeah, they celebrated that ethos, and and I kind of looked at myself as an artist and went, well, if it was going to work for me, that would be my lane, and I'm not sure I have that level of hustle. I think the 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 Living Legends um, Lasting Legacy is hustle. It is mm-hmm. the effort mm-hmm. with which um, kind of pre-early internet that they push their stuff hand-to-hand, person-to-person, building relationships, um, you know, building a system of, of promoters and things to book these tours. Again, before even like, even email was a big thing. Like imagine trying to put I that know. together just logistically um is just such a crazy thing and so i always look at them as kind of like um when they talk about the the barnstorming teams of the negro leagues and shit like that like that's that's how i think of living legends because i saw it you know what i mean i saw them um you know i i saw how that happened and i have nothing but like mad respect uh for everything that they were able to put together in terms of overrated underrated my only hope is that at least I would agree with a lot of the takes that maybe it's more of a regional thing, but I just hope that um, here in the Bay Area, we at least really, and and I'll I'll even say to LA, I think between the Bay and LA, we should make sure that we give uh, Mystic Journeyman and Living Legends their flowers because um, that was a big deal. And I think it it laid the, the framework for the things that Merce was able to do later. And even as we look at things like Rock the Bells and shit like that, I, I think living legends, um, the, the path that they, they laid. Nate? If I can plug a kind of pre-living legends and something we did, I don't think we talked about with Merce. Um, I've been back like obsessed with the Log Cabin record, the California oh, yeah. experiment. It, yeah. It's something that I had like a dub of a dub of a dub. 
in high school that I like it was hard for me to get and like it, it, we almost didn't know if it actually existed totally, and you met totally. someone who had it and you'd like kind of corner them and be like okay like how do right. I can I borrow this to take it to my house to dub and I got a dub of it and it was like a cherished possession and I found it on YouTube and uh it's not like like I, I don't know how to put this like it's so great but it's like the epitome of underground like the, these kids are young like Merce is young right on this right but right. the the structurelessness of it and the wild kind of love of language and the, the like this sounds bad but i mean it in the best possible way how shitty it sounds is so <laughs> nostalgic and so great like if i could somehow acquire like a first generation copy of this i would like put it proudly beside you know like my beatles right. records you know what i mean like it's, right, it's just a right. really important record and it, it's it's like before Living Legends was a thing, but I think if there's some if there's a something that I could recommend musically, this is like some underground hip hop from LA from some kids that is just wild, and like I, that I think everyone should listen to. Yeah, okay, that, that okay, great, man. I remember that because it was like, oh, you're into the Living Legends? Have you heard a lot of Cabin? Have you heard Three <laughs> MG? Have you, you know, it was like yeah, some fucking yeah. pre pre underground lore shit. Right. And uh, yeah, it's great. It's great to to hear how they you know while out on that shit. I mean, um, young Eli is like, dude, like not from this galaxy, you know. And yeah. to your point, Nate, like I you know I don't want to hear a polished version of that ever. You know, like the part. Of, why it's great is kind of how shitty it is totally it's like yeah. please, please don't remaster this <laughs> right. yeah i don't think you could because tascam don't make that kind of equipment no more you know what i mean like <laughs> some of these things are uh kind of forever encased in hissy carbonite uh because of when they when and how they recorded and it was a, totally a part of their ethos um and and part of the reason why some of that stuff is so so special to us um, I also posed this question, is Living Legends underrated? On our Twitter timeline, again, at DadBodRapPod. It's part of our question of the week bit that we've been doing for the past couple weeks. So just want to share a couple of responses. Shout out to everybody that chimed in. And as Nate mentioned earlier, it's always great to get the perspective of people on the East Coast, people overseas. Like we, you know, we have our own regional biases and things and uh, having the worldwide audience on Twitter has been uh, helpful for us to understand. So I'm um, going to share a couple tweets. Shout out to everybody that's doing it. We'll probably do it again next week. So stay tuned to your to your Twitters. Uh, first take I'm going to share is from uh, Sun Ra, a.k.a. Cannibal Oxtail. Sun Ra's like alias Twitters just make perfect. me not even try like perfect yeah perfect uh and and obviously I'm a big Sun Ra fan um that's S-O-N-R-A-W on Twitter he he wrote I've never heard anyone east of the Mississippi mention them and there's no guide to their album despite their being prolific and in some circles beloved so I would say so I rarely see them I rarely see people advocating for them anymore but remember, they were huge in the indie ground. So I, I know Sun Ra is a is a Canadian, um, Montreal, I believe. Um, so that's kind of the view from up north. Uh, next take we have is from uh, apologies for if I'm butchering this pronunciation, Joseph Kolarik, um, who is a frequent commenter um, on our Twitter feed and, and typically has some spicy takes. 
They have not put out an album since 08 as a group. Members as solo rappers made better albums. Merce is bigger than all of them combined. Um, so, you know, strong opinions there, but but I, I could see where you're coming from. Um, uh, Riza Texans, um, a.k.a. Primitive Form, uh, says yes because Merce. Um, obviously kind of calling out the how big of an artist Merce is and, and maybe how he's underrated and by extension the crew. I think that's where that was going. Uh, last one I'll share is from DJ Chong Wizard, uh, DJ uh, producer who uh, chimes in on a lot of our threads. Well, if it was the year 2000 and you lived in Cali, they were pretty much the biggest and most popular underground collective in the state, right there with hieroglyphics. So in their prime, they weren't underrated in their region. And I believe uh, Chong Wizard is from the East Coast. So um, there you have it. That was question of the week. Shout out to everybody that chimed in. Um, you know, peep your Twitter over the weekend. I usually post a question on, on Saturday, Saturday night or Sunday uh, that we will try to include in our Monday tapings. And then uh, you might hear yourself name checked on Thursday. So, yeah, uh, appreciate again, Merce coming on. Um, full disclosure, I actually haven't heard the interview, so I'm looking forward uh, to peeping it with y'all. And we appreciate you spending the time and attention with us here on the Dad Bod Rap Pod. And if you really like this program, I mean, like, really, really like it. Like, if you vibe with us, uh, we've got another way for you to connect with the pod. There's a new app that just dropped recently called Stereo, which is an audio platform that allows people to host conversations and for fans to talk back. Um, and so we are doing a special promotion for the next 10 weeks with Stereo, where we will be hosting um, a Monday night Stereo session at 7.30 Pacific Standard Time, where we'll talk a little bit about the episode that we just recorded, um, kind of some dad bod behind the scenes. We'll also uh, be doing some interactive things with folks who uh, who download the Stereo app and uh, vibe with us there. One of the cool things about Stereo, I just downloaded it and I'm just kind of playing around with it. But one of the cool things I've noticed is while you're listening to a conversation, which is very similar to a podcast, except it's live, you can record audio messages and send them uh, to the folks having the conversation. So I'm really interested to see you know, when we get on stereo talking our shit, um, if you can record audio messages and talk your shit back. Um, we definitely get uh, messages after the shows for when we've uh, fucked up facts, which um, <laughs> DJ FN from, uh, from Fatherhood's podcast and, and formerly of Drink Champs calls Drunk Facts, um, which I'll, I'll be rolling with that when we mess up. But with stereo, you could, you could, tell us where we're wrong live. Um, and so we encourage everybody to go out, download the app, check for us Monday night, 7.30 PST. We will be, uh, you know, just chopping it up. Open Mike Eagle may stop by much in the way that, um, you know, Larry from the Regal Beagle would just pull up on Three's Company. It's gonna be a really relaxed vibe and we hope that you can, uh, you can check us out. So download Stereo app, um, look for Dad Bod Rap Pod, and we will see how this goes. Um, if that's not your bag, we get it. It's all good. You can still connect with us at Twitter, Dad Bod Rap Pod, on Instagram, at Dad Bod Rap Pod. We drop episodes every Thursday 
interviews with influential people uh, in the hip hop genre, as well as great conversation with the bros. And with that, we will see y'all next week. Dad by Rap Pod. One of the dopest, dopest rappers ever is Is the Dope, bro. Oh yeah, from Derelicts. Oh my God, he's oh right, right, right. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh my, I could do his whole song. That song changed, also changed my life. He has a song about signing a record deal. Um, it's like uh, searching for the perfect beat. I uh, as he handed me the pen, my brain had deja vu. Examination of the situation is a trap. I held a pen while thinking back to what Jack Mack had said about a contract. Escape my only tag. I started the VP and ripped off his mask. It was Kane. No time to explain. Backflip through the window. Oh, man. Bro. Don't